0: Thank you for downloading this episode of Conversations in Law with me, your host, Hobster Co. In this episode, I'm joined by Norton Rose Fulbright's Head of Innovation, Jeremy Coleman. Jeremy began his legal career as a trainee at Norton Rose Fulbright before becoming their process and technology lead in the firm's Newcastle hub. However, law was not his first career path. Prior to starting at the firm, he worked in several start up companies ranging from the gaming industry to process engineering. Before we start today's topic, Jeremy, I was wondering why you decided to change paths and begin a legal career. Uh,
1: It was a number of things, really. I suppose the event that really put a that set me on a professional trajectory was being involved with a, um, a family office kind of venture capital group at the very outset of an idea, a concept. I was doing some research for them and participating in strategy meetings and, and just basically helping out wherever I could. And that actually resulted in the development of a product which started on the market called Pulse Tracer, but eventually became the basis, you know, arguably was the first smartwatch. And to kind of be in a room with all these people, you know, people from Harvard and, you know, had several startups under their belts and really smart people, I felt significantly out of my depth. And so that was kind of the first point where I realized, wow, you know, just having a great idea and being willing to work is a big part of it. And that's probably why I was in, in the room. I was just really excited and happy to to be there and support however I could. But to really execute on something like that big, you need some really smart people who've got a lot of exposure to a lot of different businesses. And that to me um, was kind of the turning point. That's when I decided to go to business school. And then when I was working for the process engineering company, I was doing a lot of quasi-legal work, but not actually writing contracts, but having to read regulations and really understand them and be able to interpret them because we were introducing new technology that technically did not fit into the current guidelines for the government. And so we had to essentially lobby the government and explain why this new technology was as good or better than what they had and actually, you know, lobby in some respects to help change the law, improve it. So everything was leading to law, (laughs) really. I
0: guess then your background in business then put you in a good position to approach law and law firms in an innovative way, which provides us with a nice segue then to today's topic innovation in law firms. We hear a lot, you know, innovation is used as a buzzword in, in many industries, but I was wondering if you could help try and give it a bit of a stronger definition within the context of the legal
1: sector. I'm of two minds, really, because um, part of part of the job, I think, of, of anyone working in, in a corporate innovation setting is to take concepts like innovation and make them relevant and make them accessible to the people that are working in that business. And so you know, predominantly in, in legal, I guess your audience is typically lawyers or people that support lawyers. So it is it is partially your job to take the concept of innovation and make it relevant to them. But I also think that the probably the broadest definition of innovation is, although it's difficult to kind of make it practical, it is also probably the most helpful. And in my view, it's really just about change. How do you bring about effective change within a business, whether that's a law firm, whether that's a bank? whether that's um, you know a manufacturing company, um, innovation really is the way that you go about bringing that change into the business. So the research and and kind of horizon scanning component, the narrowing down of all possible possible options to the ones that make the most sense for that business, the piloting and proof of concept uh, stage, experimentation, validation, preparing business cases, all of that, getting to the point is the preparation for uh, actually bringing the change in. And then a big part of, in my view, the role of of innovation in law firms is about helping to effectively manage that change as well. So helping to communicate the the messages and be part of the group of people that are getting people excited about the change. So it doesn't really answer your question, but I, I do think it's important to remember that ultimately innovation is about being excited to help change the business.
0: And do you think changing from law firms to banks to businesses in the the more normal private sector, do you think it's any different in a law firm trying to bring about this change?
1: It's a good question, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do only because, uh, well, there's a number of factors that make it perhaps on the surface seem more difficult. And and I want to caveat the, the comments about being more difficult with a few observations about lawyers generally. I think that there's a commonly held belief or view that lawyers are really adverse to change. They're not entrepreneurial. They like things the way that they are. And I I have to say that I wholeheartedly disagree with that. I think lawyers as a kind of a general personality, um, they are very used to change. They are incredibly entrepreneurial. You know, Every person that comes up through the ranks to become a partner essentially is, in some respects, a sole business owner in this larger group of people. And so they have to think about their practice like an entrepreneur thinks about running a business. And lawyers are exposed to change all the time, change of law, right? They are exposed to changes through new case law all the time. So I think just as a caveat to say that lawyers are potentially adverse to change, they're used to it. It's just about harnessing and channeling that. I think because of the nature of the profession they are essentially looking for reasons not reasons but things that could go wrong you know when you're advising a client you're advising them on the potential risks so you you are very good at finding reasons why uh, perhaps a transaction may not go well and so I think it's a slightly different activity in law because you have to harness both the entrepreneurial angle the kind of acceptance and familiarity with change of the law and balance that against their, shall we say, the sector imperative of lawyers to find what's wrong with something. And and that that makes it slightly different, I think, to other industries.
0: Do you think then, I suppose if you called it their more risk adverse approach, do you think that has been difficult for you to sort of overcome when trying to introduce, you know, new innovative ideas?
1: I don't think so. I mean, it certainly provides a different environment for you to be having those conversations. But I think the risk averse nature of lawyers is perhaps it's an oversimplification because I think, as I said before, lawyers are, are, are looking to, to run a successful business and they are by and large, I mean, the, the good ones, especially very responsive and attentive to clients needs. And so a good law firm and a good lawyer will always be aware of the need to change if a client's needs are changing. I suppose it, it just comes down to the maybe the size or extent of that change that's required.
0: So a big part of innovation in the legal field is legal technology. And there has been a significant increase in the uptake of legal technology across law firms. Do you think that COVID pandemic has sort of driven law firms to this? Or as you mentioned before, clients are potentially a bigger driving factor?
1: Well, there's a couple of things in there. First, to deal with the COVID situation. Absolutely. I mean, I've seen various estimates to say the last year has seen the adoption and happily accepting the use of technology throughout the not just the legal sector, but everywhere, perhaps driving that change, what would have taken five years has happened in one year. You know, I've heard we've moved three years and three months and I've heard all various things about that. So absolutely, there's no question the kind of forced remote working has driven on the adoption of a lot of tools, particularly those that facilitate collaboration uh, and better communication. The vast majority of those tools, bind you, that have become adopted and used by law firms and, and clients, to work with law firms, I would say do not necessarily fall into the category of of what we would call legal tech. Um, they're they're just simply communication tools. You know, Microsoft Teams, uh, Zoom, you know, are two of the big big ones. Um, but I wouldn't put those in the category of legal tech. And then I would also, in some senses, caution against. And and I think sometimes it's unhelpful to categorize technology as legal technology both from the perspective of the vendors who are trying to sell their tools to not just lawyers, but a wide array of businesses. Now, law firms are obviously, you know, are a, a very easily identifiable kind of target market. But I think another thing, and I know you didn't ask about this, but I think it's worth kind of mentioning. Another thing that it does is it psychologically drives a wedge between the more traditional IT departments who have been responsible for onboarding and maintaining technology for decades, and this new kind of breed of quasi-lawyer, quasi-technologist. I think... As we move into this next kind of phase of the use of technology, the firms that are best able to blend their IT departments and their kind of legal technologists and bring everyone along for that journey are going to be the most successful.
0: So you're sort of seeing that law firms need to sort of have a a plan of action that is bringing on board, you know, this new technology, adopting it, but at the same time finding that, I suppose, synergy with existing working practices, existing technology and teams. Do you think that an important aspect of that then is building your non-traditional skills for lawyers? So your coding and more business-related skills, is that sort of becoming a bigger aspect of a lawyer's life?
1: I mean, simple answer to that is yes, without a doubt. So we have a number of programs that are running at Norton Rose Fulbright at the moment, which are designed explicitly for that purpose. So we have a what has been a remarkably successful graduate scheme for people looking to join the firm and work in non-legal roles, but support the larger business outcomes and, and actually also to help drive the, the development of a legal consulting or a legal operations consulting practice. And um, through that, there's a huge element of education. Now, I, I get the question a lot about should lawyers learn to code? And I have kind of, at various points over the last few years, come down on various sides of that argument in different ways. I've kind of come to the conclusion that having a basic understanding of what, you know, quote unquote coding is, is helpful because for all the professional services, not just law, but as we move forward, more and more of those services are going to be codified into uh, technology. The professionals in, in those firms and in those organizations that are um, that can get closer to how the technology is actually made, and by closer, I don't necessarily mean coding, but I do mean having the ability to communicate with people who are very good at coding, in a way that may not require a translator. That, I think, is the ultimate. That's the place where we should all be heading. Those people who are extremely proficient in code, should, who have a desire or who currently work in a law firm, should be taking efforts or making efforts to try to better understand the, the subject matter experts whose subject matter they are codified. Similarly, I think the subject matter experts who have this really valuable knowledge should also be taking steps to better understand the people who will be helping to codify their knowledge. And so there's there's a middle ground, and at the present moment, there's a wonderful career path for anyone that can play that translation role. And that role will continue to exist, I think. But I do think that to make everything faster, more efficient, and perhaps reduce some, the kind of translation errors, so to speak, I do think that for lawyers to understand around the coding issue, at least just understanding it, what it is, what are the languages, how does it work. It actually, in my view, the logic that sits behind a lot of languages in the coding world is is actually quite similar to the way that lawyers think. So there, there's actually a, a lot of common ground there. You asked about business skills as well. And, and I think this is an absolute no-brainer. We should have been doing this years ago. Certainly lawyers have learned those on the job. But I do think that a greater emphasis on understanding business just generally as the different skills understanding sales, understanding finance principles, understanding how to put a basic budget together, all of that stuff, really, really important. And and not just for lawyers, for everyone. I think if everyone had a basic business acumen, everything would be a lot better.
0: Do you believe that there's a, a hesitancy amongst you know existing lawyers to reskill in this area?
1: Well, I think so, probably. But where I would kind of differentiate between what I've just you know, mentioned and perhaps reskilling entirely is it's just about part of your ever evolving requirement to continually educate yourself. If you know, and I feel fairly confident in saying that technology is going to play an increasingly more important role in people's careers, in their lives, and in the delivery of any kind of service, that it's probably a good thing, not only for their personal development, but for their career development to take an interest in it, and to at least have a base understanding of what are the factors that are motivating this change and how might technology impact their personal careers going forward. I think reskilling has a negative connotation in that it implies that people maybe have to do it as an imperative. I guess the difficult part is where do you start? Right, where do you start? Because there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot yes. of information out there.
0: And in terms of the next generation of lawyers, people who are currently at law school or sitting their professional qualifications, how much responsibility should they be taking at that stage to learn these skills? Do you think that it's going to come a point when they're applying for training contracts that not having those skills is going to be a serious detriment, or or do you think it's just a, an added bonus that you, if you have those skills?
1: I think at the moment there is probably no advantage. If you were applying for a training contract to have those skills, I think most law firms right now are still kind of have a more traditional approach to recruitment. But what I would say is, you know, it's kind of like we're in this very interesting phase, I think, where knowing one thing and knowing one thing well is just not enough anymore. You have to have a number of different things that you can draw upon and and you don't need to be an expert in all of them. You just need to be able to, I think, have a, a relatively good conversation with somebody who is an expert. If I were studying right now, I would be looking at listening to a podcast like this one, you know, reading in the press. There's a lot of conversations about the use of technology. And it's not scary, really. I mean, a good portion of the the kind of tools and technology that's out there right now is very user-friendly. So it's it's kind of like learning a new way to communicate. It's kind of like being open to a new way of expressing yourself for those people that are just starting out their careers. I would personally advise that you, you know, try to get involved. You know, organizations like the Legal Hackers, for example. I know there's a chapter in Newcastle and and there's one in London, uh, and they're they're all over the world. For example, there are numerous kind of startup incubators that are always welcoming of students. Barclays Eagle Labs is one, and it doesn't have to be legal tech at all. But there's a number of different technology incubator programs out there. You can uh, just intern, just be in, immersed in the environments, understand. The connection between you know how technology is being used and who's buying it and what's the purpose i would be attending conferences to the extent that you're able to virtually right now most of them are still online so conferences like uh, legal geek which has been a hugely uh, important venue i think for bringing people together who have a similar view on the, the role of technology in, in law i would also i just basically you know read the press and just be interested in what they're saying. This is the start of a very interesting period for um, the legal profession, and we may find very soon that the recruitment uh, requirements for for law firms start to change.
0: So potentially, we'll be seeing law degrees at university encompassing elements of you know, computer science and business related skills.
1: I think so. I mean, I'm I'm always one to kind of be in front of the curve or try to be in front of the curve, to the extent that I'm able to be. I'm very proud to say that um, I've been involved in designing and developing uh, some curriculum, uh, a module for the University of York, which actually does combine the law faculty and the computer science faculty. And the outcome there is, of course, we want the students to To develop an app or or solution. But actually, what we're hoping is the real outcome and may not be realized from the moment that they finish the module. The thing that we're trying to do is have future lawyers understand that there are solutions to legal problems that are probably better solved with technology. And I mean, even as a starting point, that legal problems can be solved with technology. Um, And then equally, having future computer scientists and engineers understand the, the full breadth or or at least have an exposure to the breadth of very complicated and extremely rewarding problems to be solved in legal. And, and for them to know that legal is welcoming of computer scientists and people with that particular skill set, uh, and they're going to need lots more of them. So, yes, absolutely. And, and I, there are a number of universities. I know uh, DWF and Freshfields are, are doing work at uh, University of Manchester and and there are a number of other law firms that are working with uh, universities on modules just like that. If it's not already happening, it's starting to, and I expect that that will be part of the curriculum. At the undergrad level, probably across all or hopefully all undergraduate law programs in the near future.
0: So as you're saying that there's been this sort of shake up in in the legal education, but if you're looking at law firms as a a whole, do you think that there is going to be some more drastic changes to how they operate, how they um, structure themselves?
1: It's a good question. I think the um, the short answer is maybe. Well, <laughs> law firms are going to have to go through some kind of restructuring. Absolutely, I think that the way that they've grown up from being, you know, in quite a short period of time, being organizations with only you know a few dozen partners and maybe one or two offices, to being these global law firms with you know thousands of partners and, and many thousands of lawyers. I think the way that that is structured works only to a point. And if you want to be responsive and you want to, you know, taking, I think is true, the pace of change is increasing. You need a a business structure that allows you to, to rapidly evolve. Now, there's some great benefits to having partnership because all of the owners of the business work in the business and they have the ability to help, you know, push decisions along. And in some cases, you can avoid the bureaucracy that might exist in a corporate structure. But conversely, for the same reasons that it's a benefit, having all of the owners work in the business where they're potentially not keeping retained earnings in the business in the same way that a corporate structure might, that means that you may not have enough um, money around to invest in the future. Now, I think all the big global law firms are very aware of this uh, duality. And I think that they are taking steps to retain earnings to invest in the future. But, uh, but I think we're going to see, not just in law, we've already seen it in big corporates, they're starting to restructure themselves around the concept of projects, and not big departments that are just responsible for one thing. You know, we know that multidisciplinary teams are absolutely the way to uh, execute big projects. It may not make sense to have law firms and or any other business continue to be structured in big kind of departmental silos.
0: what. I guess might also be important then is, is the concept of how law firms measure their productivity. Obviously, a big aspect of that is billable hours. I mean, you have target hours, you've got to meet them. If the purpose of innovation is to reduce you know, uh, the amount of hours being spent working on a product, become more efficient, do you see sort of billable hours as, as being an obstacle to this?
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, but it's in the grand context. So it it comes more down to clients, right? So if a client is saying that they want you to be more efficient and your whole kind of billing structure and finance structure is constructed around recording as many hours as possible, they're kind of in conflict, right? Clients are constantly saying that they want us to to switch as much as possible to fixed and and capped fee arrangements. But before we can do that, you know, for law firms to have certainty around, you know, the fact that they're going to be able to make money doing that, they have to do quite an extensive operation around the data, understanding broadly how much it costs them to do matters of a similar type, agreeing on how to categorize and, and classify matters so that they can identify them as a similar type. And all firms right now are looking at this in various ways. The conflict, as I see it, is between being more efficient and having the targets based on the number of hours that you bill. And I think perhaps a stepping stone to maybe help us get there is rather than focusing on billable hours, we're actually focusing on write-offs and focusing efficiency improvements on the tasks that we have lawyers do that are typically written off. And so that that might be a good place to focus. But yeah, I, I mean, there, it, it's an inherent conflict. You're absolutely right.
0: And do you think then with the efficiency gains being achieved through adoption of more innovative techniques, do you think that's going to have an impact on the number of jobs that are available?
1: Uh, No, I, I actually think it's the opposite. If you're able to kind of remove, shall we say, more repetitive, less value adding components of people's jobs, it means that they get to focus on the higher value, more rewarding parts of their work. And I think the the effect of that on the industry in general, and even just in a one firm scenario, if you have people that are that are going home an hour earlier, that are happier, that are actually they have got a bit of space to think about the client, to think about their needs, they're not constantly having to grind out some very repetitive and difficult voluminous work. Everyone's mood improves, which means they're th- they have the opportunity to think about the client. And if they're thinking more about the client, then the client gets a better service. And if they get a better service, then perhaps they'll give that for more work. So I think actually it will lead to more work and actually more jobs than uh, fewer jobs and, and different types of jobs as well. You'll have legal experts, you'll have legal process experts. You'll have legal technology experts or people that use technology in a legal context. And then all of the other parts that come with that, you've got your your legal data analysts. The use of data science in, in law is just starting, but I think it's going to be a massive opportunity for anyone who's kind of got a, an interest in that. I do think it'll lead to more jobs.
0: So as you mentioned there that potentially with the rise of these efficiency gains you might be seeing the end of those you know horrendous working hours that particularly city firms are known for
1: i would hope so i mean <laughs> i'm being perhaps overly optimistic and maybe some of my my friends who are still fearning in practice may disagree but i think that there's a place that we could get to where lawyers are able to log into their computer put down a good seven hours, eight hours, nine hours of billable work because it's being presented to them in a way that don't have to faff around and you know go to five or six different systems to figure out what they need to do to start it, go back and reading through six months of emails to even just get started. I think we're going to get to a point where lawyers are able to log in, start working, start billing, or at least recording their time. We may even move away from that. I mean, that maybe I'm maybe that's a pipe dream. But uh <laughs> but I do think we're gonna get to a stage where you can put in a solid eight hours of work and be done for the day. And then that be kind of like your target for the law firm is there. You go, you've done your eight hours and you've created a huge amount of value for the firm, a huge amount of value for the client cut out a lot of the stuff in between so i do think it's possible i may be <laughs> i may be wishful thinking but uh you know that's that's why i'm in this job
0: well i think that that's sort the of optimistic vision for the future is a good place to sort of draw things to a close but before we go a question that I, i'd like to ask all of my guests is that if you were starting out your your legal career again applying for training contracts what sort of firms would you be looking to apply for? What what is it in a firm that, that draws you?
1: Uh, it's a great question. So I think if you want to work for kind of an innovative and forward thinking firm, be very. I know I said earlier, you know, read the read the legal press and and just get a feel for what's going on. I'm going to basically completely contradict myself now by saying be very wary of innovation by press release, or what we sometimes referred to as innovation theater, look behind that. And if a firm is really, um, sounds interesting, don't be afraid to ask them questions about it. There are a lot of great firms out there that do a lot of great innovative things that are very forward thinking in terms of work-life balance, diversity and inclusion, which may not be the ones who are yelling the loudest, Sometimes those are those are the firms that you want to to kind of focus in on. I mean, I I have um, I've spoken to clients before who have said to students, and and I I tend to agree with this that a good measure of an innovative firm is one that has kind of non-practicing and sometimes even non-lawyer partners, um, because as an organization, what they value is the value that that person brings to the organization and by making them a partner it's a it's a strong indication both to the market but also to the organization that we really value this kind of this person's contribution to the firm and so that's that's a one thing to kind of look out for and then i suppose is this law firm offering services to clients that are quite on the edge of what's new we've got a an incredibly strong fintech practice with some incredible people We've got a, a really strong cyber practice and in both of those still emerging practice areas. And I think a very good indication of the firm's willingness and a kind of desire to be offering what is relevant to our clients today and tomorrow. So if you're interested in a career in, in law, I would encourage you to, uh, to apply for our, one of our vacation schemes or uh, uh, obviously the training contracts. But also for those who are not quite sure about whether they want to be a lawyer, Um, I mentioned it before, but we've got a a phenomenal graduate scheme for people who are looking for a, a career in a law firm, but maybe not want to be a lawyer. You know, a couple of other firms that I'm hugely impressed by, Clifford Chance, they've got a number of different avenues in. They've got, I think it's called Ignite, their kind of tech training contract, really impressive. Also Mishkondorea in terms of their MDR Labs, what Nick West has done there is really impressive. There, there are plenty of, of firms out there, but but I'll leave it at that.
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank
1: you very much for having me. Uh, I, I, this has been great. Thanks again.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this edition of Conversations in Law. If you'd like to support me and the show, then please rate it five stars on the iTunes store and follow the show on your podcast app. If you would like more information about this episode and any other episodes, then take a look at the trainee blog on the AccuTrainee website. That's www.accutrainee.com.